I like that, that bit in that Exodus 32, and they, they got up to indulge in revelry. You know what that means? We'll have to do a word study on that. So um, at the nine o'clock, we were really quiet. It seems that nine o'clock, September comes, and everyone goes on holiday. And um, so it's a bit like a, a graveyard, not literally. Um, <clears throat> but, um, but what was really interesting, there was a young guy there, and I said, oh, his first time, I said, where have you come from? He said, I've come from Mauritius. I said, that's funny. So two, two weeks ago, we prayed for someone as they went to Mauritius, and they, they're there, and now someone from Mauritius has come. Do you see, like, a coincidence thing going on? We also prayed for people to go to France, didn't we? Is there anyone here this morning from France? My theory doesn't work. Okay, so <clears throat> shall we pray? Father, we pray as we come to look at this, um, these texts this morning, that, uh, one of them we've been thinking about for a long time, that you might speak into our hearts and minds afresh, that we might come to know more of you, the living God. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, if you've just uh, pitched up today, you're most welcome. But this is uh, the end of a sermon series that we've been doing all over the summer. And we started it seven weeks ago. And we've been looking specifically at just those few verses from Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And within that, we've been reflecting upon the name of God, recognizing that certainly within uh, the biblical times, names hold significance about a person's character and about their identity. So we, as a church, have been asking, really, what is God's name? Because God has a name. And uh, it's not just God, but his name, we've been discovering, is the name Yahweh. And, and it means something about his character. And these verses that we look at uh, over these past uh, two months or so, kind of revealed to us what God is like. And, and if we just go back a bit, and you may remember right at the very beginning, uh, we spoke from Exodus 33, and, and Moses was meeting with God in a tent outside of the camp. People had come out from slavery in Egypt. They were in, uh, in this, on their way to the promised land. And Moses was meeting with God and his presence was there. And one of the things that Moses says to God is, show me your glory. He's asking God to reveal more of himself to Moses. You know, Moses knows something about this God, Yahweh, who he first really encountered at the burning bush, but he wants to know more. He wants to deepen his relationship. And so what happens is, is that Moses, at the instruction of God, goes up the mountain where they were camped at the bottom of, and he takes two stone tablets, which we know as the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are very simply the way in which God's people should live, which would actually distinguish them from the other peoples in the world. And Moses is told to hide in a cleft. He can't see God's face. And God comes in a cloud and he proclaims his name to Moses. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh. And then he tells Moses what his name means. And um, it's one of the few times in the Bible where God describes himself. Lots of other people kind of describe God, but this is one of the few times in the Bible where God describes himself. And actually what you'll find is that this text is repeated on a number of occasions within the scriptures itself. And so, um, as Tim just read to us, um, 
God says, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And so what Moses and we, if you've been around, have discovered over these past uh, weeks is that Yahweh, in terms of his character, is compassionate, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in love, he's faithful and he's forgiving. Yet, at the same time, it seems, that, according to this text, that rebellion and sin matter to God. You know, basically, he says at the end of this text, the guilty will get what they deserve. But, but the thing about it is that they're not going to get what they deserve in a vacuum. It's not cold-hearted judgment, but actually it's in the context of compassion and, and uh, abounding in love and faithfulness and forgiveness. And so what we find about this God, Yahweh, is that he will demonstrate justice. And justice is simply putting right that that which is wrong or, or making that which is crooked straight again. He will demonstrate justice, but he will do it in the context of mercy and compassion and grace and love. Uh, mercy triumphs over judgment, as it says in James's letter. And, and when Yahweh, if you go back again beyond uh, chapter 33, if you go back to when Moses first encountered God at the burning bush, uh, we find that, that Moses finds out that God says that he was the one who was, who is, and who forever will be. And, and what that leads us to believe about what God says about himself is that he is compassionate all the time. He is gracious all the time. He's slow to anger all the time. Was that the one about the big nose? He is long of nose all the time. Listen to the podcast. He is abounding in love all the time. He's faithful and forgiving all the time. Yahweh, as Moses gets to know more about him, he discovers that he doesn't have an off day, but he is constant in who he is. And it's so important, I think, that we, if we're seeking to follow Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, that we get to know what God is like according to the scriptures so that uh, we have an idea of what he's like. Because ultimately, it's been said, we become who or what we worship. Who or what we worship is what we then mirror. And uh, if we don't have a clear sense of who God is according to the scriptures, and that's the place where we start, then we can help up with an unhelpful caricature of God. And often that God can look like us and our own prejudices and our own misinterpretations of the Bible. And you may remember that I put together a few caricatures. I just do one, which is my favorite one, about what we might look like and in terms of who we worship. Uh, my favorite one was if we think that God is just a good concept, that he's warm-hearted but powerless, that he's big on bureaucracy but small on action, then we will become a vicar in the Church of England. It's important we know what God is like so that we can then become like him. You know, there's lots of talk at the moment, isn't there, about being true to yourself and, you know, holding on to your true identity. Well, I think what the scriptures tell us is that if we are made in the image of God, if we are really to be true to ourselves, 
What it means is, primarily, is that we will be compassionate, gracious, abounding in love, merciful, faithful, and forgiving. That is what it is to be truly human. So we've looked at the character of God, and that then brings us to the last part of this text from Exodus 34, which is the second part of uh, verse 7. And if you look at it, if you, you would have heard it, I'll be honest with you, I really didn't want to preach about this, the, this verse this morning. Uh, you know, as we've been reflecting on the character of God, and I'm grateful to those who have preached over the summer for that, you know, I would say that these sermons, as we've been reflecting on God's character, have been, for me, like water in the desert. They've been an anchor in the storm, because I think we need to be reminded of who God is and what he is like. But then we get to this last sentence about God's character. And, uh, and it, it says this, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Now, that I'm okay with because I know from what we see earlier on in the text that God exercises justice, i.e. punishing the guilty, but he does that in the context of grace and mercy. I don't think he's going to be an unfair judge. He judges within a context of grace and mercy. And I also think, actually, that whole thing about the guilty unpunished, that I, I, think, I don't think it's a fair world when the guilty do go unpunished by God. You know, I think that if God is just and he does punish the guilty, then actually I think it helps us a bit more, not completely, but with this whole question of evil and suffering. It makes a bit more sense because if after death the good and the guilty are dealt with by a God of justice, the guilty aren't left unpunished, I think it helps to make a little bit more sense, maybe not answer the question entirely about, what it, about suffering and evil. Otherwise, I think if the guilty don't go, um, the guilty do go unpunished, it seems so unfair that leaders like Hitler and Pinochet and Idi Amin and the list can go on, have gone to the grave without having to answer for the atrocities that they have carried out in their lifetime. And actually, if you look through the Old Testament, and I'll be honest with you, there's not a very clear sense of what we find in the New Testament when it comes to hell, but actually the conclusion they come to is that if God is a God of justice, then surely after death, the wicked, the guilty, will be brought to account for their wrong actions on earth. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. It, the ultimate judge will ultimately judge. So, thinking about that, I'm okay with the first part of that sentence. Not that it matters whether I'm okay with it or not, but you, you know what I mean. So, but the killer bit, I think, is the next part, where it then goes on, it says that he, Yahweh, punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, does anyone struggle with that bit. Yeah, okay. So up to this point, Yahweh, um, who I thought was compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, faithful, and forgiving, it seems to indicate will also punish innocent children because of the sins of their parents. So this text could mean that the sins of my own father, which aren't dealt with, then have a negative effect in terms of God bringing about some kind of punishment upon me, upon my sons, upon my grandchildren, and my great-grandchildren. So, you know, up until this point, this sermon series, I think, has been great. 
Exodus 34, there's some great stuff in here. But what a rubbish ending about the character of God. I think it's a bit harsh, isn't it, really? He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. It just doesn't seem fair to me. Is that fair enough? And actually a number of people over the past few weeks have said, how can we make sense of this bit? And I've said, um, I've got no idea. I'm hoping that I don't have to preach on it, but we're going to have a go at it. And so at the risk of performing what you might consider to be some exegetical gymnastics, let me offer you three thoughts on this text. And and the third thought, uh, I think, will explain a bit more about what it means. The first two thoughts are about what it doesn't mean mean actually in terms of how I read it Um, but an intro to the first thought now last Sunday uh, we said goodbye to Phil and Sarah Baskerville or let's test out the theory they went to Wales is there anyone here from Wales oh there you go then theories prove right (coughs) so so there's a a connection uh, actually here between the Baskervilles And this idea of generational punishment. Has anyone got any ideas as to that connection? (coughs) We've got all the time in the world. (laughs) No? (coughs) No? Close. Well, not that close, but I'm being kind. (laughs) But um, (coughs) in the book, The Hound of the Baskervilles... It's all about a generational curse that runs through the Baskerville family that started in the English Civil War. When Sir Hugo Baskerville was killed by a huge demonic dog or hound, that hound then haunted Dartmoor ever since and caused the premature death of many Baskerville heirs. It's not true, it's just the book. But then Sherlock Holmes comes along and he reveals the truth. And if you don't know what that is, you'll have to read the book. But the first thought is about generational curses. I don't think that this text is saying that we will be cursed or punished because of sin and failure in a previous generation. I don't think this text is advocating for what might be called generational curses. You know, it might all be that your great-grandfather committed adultery. That doesn't then mean that God passes a curse onto the next few generations to say that your marriages are going to be rubbish. I don't think that's what this is talking about. And in fact, what we find a number of times in the scriptures is it's clear that each person actually is responsible for themselves and what they do and don't do when it comes to God and sin and righteousness. One example is from Ezekiel, and the prophet here is talking about um, Old Testament stuff about, you know, you do this and you'll die kind of stuff. And he says, the one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the, wicked, of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. And I think from that text and other texts, basically I'm come to the conclusion that we are not cursed or punished for something our parents or grandparents did. And equally, let me say this, if you are a parent, you are not to blame if your child turns away from God. You may not have it sorted before God and you may not think that your life kind of is a good example, but but God is constant. 
And people make their decisions not based on me, but actually upon God. They're not putting faith in me, they're putting faith in Jesus. And, and I think that we need to recognize that um, where bad stuff happens to us, it's not because of the sin of a previous generation. This text is not advocating for generational curses. And I think even if it was, and I don't think it is, if you then flip through to the New Testament, to Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, in chapter 3, he indicates that Christ died on the cross. He became a curse for us. And because he became a curse for us, he broke all curses that we may think over us. And I think we come to Christ and we are freed from the curse of sin on the cross. You know, do not think that the sins of the fathers are indiscriminately passed down from one generation to another to mess up and wreck your life in this present moment. First thought. Second thought is that there is a consequence that does fall upon children if their parents sin, and every parent sins. But I don't believe that it's a punishment from God. It's simply a horrible consequence of the sin of the parents. And and the sin of the parents could be excessive pride. It could be greed. It could be a critical spirit. The list goes on. Uh, This one might sound a bit extreme, but sadly it's far too common. If a father sexually abuses his daughter, then as a consequence of his sin, that daughter could find close relationships really difficult. They could hate themselves. They may have poor physical health. They could struggle with their own mental health. They might spend a lifetime in therapy trying to work out what has happened to them when they were younger. The sins of the parent can punish the child and their children and their children's children, but it's not coming from God. It's the sins of the fathers that have consequence for others. The consequence of sin may feel like punishment in itself. John Mark Comer, who wrote the book that we've been basing this on, wrote this. He said, when parents sin, the children are collateral damage. So if you're a parent, you carry a hefty responsibility. But it's not all bad news, uh, because actually I think that parents can bless their children in all kinds of good and godly ways. And despite what others might say, I still believe that parents are the most significant influence on their children. And children can then know the positive consequences of their parents' generosity and integrity and humility and prayerfulness and compassion and grace. You know, we don't just pass on bad stuff, but actually we can bless our children in all kinds of ways. I also want to say that I do think that despite the fact that the consequences of the sin can feel like punishment, we can find restoration and healing even if we are the collateral damage of our parents' sin. But for that to happen, I do think we need to go back in order to go forward so that we can break the power of the past. We don't just brush it under the carpet. And I think that as we go back to go forward, so we become more like Christ. You know, going back, and some people say, I'm not doing that, not opening that box. You know, it's not about nostalgia or nasal gaving, but actually it's about healing and transformation. It's about becoming more loving because actually love, agape love, is the mark of spiritual 
maturity. Now, it may well be that some of you have attained spiritual maturity. That's great. If you have, let me know after, and I'll let you know what I think. But most of us, <coughs> most of us haven't. Many of you will know I've been influenced by the work of Pete Scazzaro, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, and, and he's got this little phrase. He says, Jesus may live in your heart, but Grandpa lives in your bones. Jesus may live in your heart, but Grandpa lives in your bones. You know, when we turn to Christ, we can still be influenced for good or ill by past generations. And I think it's true that um, the Apostle Paul, he writes in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. But it also means, because we're in the process of being made holy, that we may still have some work to do under God because of the consequences of the sins of the Father. Now, my own background is actually quite dysfunctional. I thought we were normal. And then in time, I stepped out of that and I realized that we weren't. But I would say that for myself, over the years, I've been quite intentional about facing the consequences of the sins of former generations. Over the years, I've done that through studying the scriptures, through silence and solitude, because then we're faced with ourselves through counselling, spiritual direction, prayer ministry. The list goes on. But I do it because I firmly believe that I need to go back in order to go forward so that I might become the person God has created me to be. And within all of that, I am a work in progress. God hasn't finished with me yet. But within all of that, you know, I, as I get older, I do not want to join the ranks of the grumpy old man club. Some of you I know have got membership, but <clears throat> I don't want to be in it. You know, in life, I want to be less critical and more encouraging. I want to be actually less frustrated and more patient. I want to be less envious of others, and I struggle with jealousy. I want to be more delighted when others succeed. I want to be less stingy and more generous. I want to be less mean and more kind. I do want to be less grumpy and more joyful. I want to become like Christ. And I need all the help that I can get. And I think in light of this text from Exodus, I think we need to remember that we aren't just individuals acting alone in life, but we are part of a family system that goes back generations. And we can embrace and celebrate the good and under God, I think we can seek restoration and healing for the consequences of the sins of former generations. So, second thought is that a consequence of the sins of the fathers may feel like punishment. Third and final thought. <coughs> this is about an hour long, but stay with me. <coughs> this is this, is that one generation's sin can become the sin of the next generation and the next and the next subsequent generations can be as sinful as the last generation. You know, the context of this text from Exodus 34 is that the major sin of God's people was idolatry. And in fact, if you go through the Old Testament, the biggest sin that keeps coming up time and time again was idolatry, worshipping other gods, worshipping gods who hadn't rescued them from slavery, you know, worshipping gods who weren't leading them from a bitter place in Egypt, to a better place in the promised land. This text 
uh, <clears throat> from Exodus, where it says he punishes the children and the children for the sins of the parents of the third and fourth generation, needs to be read not in isolation, but in the, in the context of where we find that same text earlier on in the book of Exodus. Exodus 20, Moses has been up to the mountain the first time. He's got the Ten Commandments, and he comes down with them. The second commandment says this, you shall not make yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And hear this, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. We've just heard that, haven't we? But then it says, to those who hate me. But showing love to thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. In this commandment about idolatry, I think it's clear that Yahweh is painting a picture of this commandment where one generation hates God, they've turned their back on him, and then the next generation has done the same, and the next generation has done the same. And so because of this recurring theme of idolatry and hatred, God punishes them. What's another word we use for punish? Discipline. He disciplines them. Why? Because he loves them and he wants better for them. Um, Our our three sons are over this weekend and um, there's two of them over there. And if you speak to any of them, they will tell you at times that I disciplined them when they were naughty, which was very rare. (laughs) (laughs) And, And whilst they may not have seen it at the time, confession, father to son going on here, I punished them or disciplined them because I love them dearly. And I want the very best for them. At times, I'm sure they hated me. (laughs) But I disciplined them. Why? Out of great love for them. From this text in Exodus 20, and then going on to 34, it's clear that Yahweh punished his people when they hated him and turned to other idols. And he disciplined them. Why? Because he loved them deeply. He wanted to drive the sin and idolatry out of them. Despite Yahweh rescuing the people from Egypt and slavery and providing for them and leading them to a bitter and better place, from a bitter place to a better place, what we discover in that other reading that we had uh, from Exodus 32 is that when Moses had gone up the mountain for the first time to receive the Ten Commandments and to enter into this covenant relationship, is that God's people at the foot of the mountain became impatient with Moses. He was there 40 days and 40 nights. And they took matters into their own hands. And in that moment of time, they turned from Yahweh, who Moses was speaking to, to another God. And it doesn't help that Aaron was there sorting it out with them. And uh, Aaron answered, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So what happened was, Moses is in the mountain sorting out the the, the terms of this covenant relationship. And the people who have been blessed by God for generations previously are at the bottom making an idol out of gold. It's incredibly insulting and fickle, isn't it? I've taken eight weddings this year, 
But imagine that just after the bride and groom, they've come down here, they've made their promises, they've entered into this covenant relationship with one another, the new husband turns round and publicly snogs the chief bridesmaid. <laughs> or the new wife stretches across the husband and snogs the best man. That would be awful, wouldn't it? Yes. But that is what it's like in Exodus 32. The people have got to be unfaithful. They've turned to a golden calf. And to be honest, you wouldn't blame God if he says, well, stuff this for a game of soldiers. Despite providing for you and rescuing you, I'm going to find someone else. But amazingly, what we find is that God decides to continue his partnership with these unfaithful people, not because of their goodness, but because of his mercy and grace and compassion and loyal love. And I think the reason why the text says he, Yahweh, punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation is because when sin does run from one generation to another generation to another generation, God does punish or disciplines those generations, not because he hates them, but because he loves them. Because he's in this relationship with them for the long haul. Despite their sin, he is not going to let them go because he loves them too much and he wants to drive out the sin of idolatry from them. And what was true for them is true also for us. Despite our sin and our rebellion, God sticks with us because he loves us deeply and he's in it for the long haul. So let's draw things to a close. Three thoughts on what at first glance seems to be a very harsh verse. Firstly, I don't think it's about generational curses. And, and if you think the sin of previous generations is messing up your life, come to Christ and be set free. Secondly, Jesus is in my heart, but grandpa is in my bones. There are consequences for what has gone on before, but I would encourage you, challenge you to go back in order to go forward so that you might be healed and restored. And finally, despite our sin and rebellion, God sticks with us. He may well discipline us, but he does that not because he's nasty, but because he loves us deeply and he's in this relationship for the long haul. Ultimately, his mercy triumphs over judgment. So remember this God has a name. <clears throat> And his name is Yahweh. And his name means that he is compassionate, gracious, abounding in love, merciful, faithful, and forgiving all the time. Remember his name. Shall we stand? <clears throat>